Section two of The Death of Lord Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by F. N. H. The Death of Lord Nelson by William Beatty. Section two. Several officers of the ship now communicated to each other their sentiments of anxiety for his lordship's personal safety, to which every other consideration seemed to give way. Indeed, all were confident of gaining a glorious victory, but the apprehensions for his lordship were great and general, and the surgeon made known to Dr. Scott his fears that his lordship would be made the object of the enemy's marksmen and his desire that he might be entreated by somebody to cover the stars on his coat with a handkerchief. Dr. Scott and Mr. Scott, the public secretary, both observed, however, that such a request would have no effect, as they knew his lordship's sentiments on the subject so well, that they were sure he would be highly displeased with whoever should take the liberty of recommending any such change in his dress on this account and when the surgeon declared to Mr. Scott that he would avail himself of the opportunity of making his sick report for the day to submit his sentiments to the Admiral, Mr. Scott replied, Take care, Doctor, what you are about. I would not be the man to mention such a matter to him. The surgeon, notwithstanding, persisted in his design, and remained on deck to find a proper opportunity for addressing his lordship. But this never occurred as his lordship continued occupied with the captains of the frigates to whom he was explaining his intentions respecting the services they were to perform during the battle, till a short time before the enemy opened their fire on the royal sovereign, when Lord Nelson ordered all persons not stationed on the quarter-deck or poop to repair to their proper quarters, and the surgeon, much concerned at this disappointment, retired from the deck with several other officers. The boats on the quarter-deck of the ship, being found in the way of the guns, were now lowered down and towed astern. Captain Blackwood of the Euryalus remained on board the Victory till a few minutes before the enemy began to fire upon her. He represented to his lordship that his flagship would be singled out and much pressed by the enemy, and suggested the propriety, therefore, of permitting one or two of the ships of the line to go ahead of the Victory, and lead her into action which might be the means of drawing in some measure of the enemy's attention from her. To this Lord Nelson assented, and at half-past nine o'clock he ordered the Temeraire and the Leviathan by signal, the former of which ships, being close to the victory, was hailed by his lordship, to go ahead for that purpose. But from the light breeze that prevailed they were unable, notwithstanding their utmost efforts, to attain their intended stations. Captain Blackwood foresaw that this would be the case, and as the victory still continued to carry all her sail, he wished Captain Hardy to acquaint his lordship that unless her sail was in some degree shortened, the two ships that mentioned could not succeed in getting ahead previously to the enemy's line being forced. This, however, Captain Hardy declined doing, as he conceived his lordship's ardour to get into battle would on no account suffer for such a measure. About half an hour before the enemy opened their fire, the memorable telegraphic signal was made that England expects every man will do his duty, which was spread and received throughout the fleet with enthusiasm. 
it is impossible adequately to describe by any language the lively emotions excited in the crew of the victory when this propitious communication was made known to them confidence and resolution were strongly portrayed in countenance of all and the sentiment generally expressed to each other was that they would prove to their country that day how well british seamen could do their duty when led to battle by their revered admiral the signal was afterwards made to prepare to anchor after the close of the day and union jacks were hoisted at the fore topmast and topgallant stays of each ship to serve as a distinction from the enemy in conformity with the orders previously issued by the commander-in-chief by his lordship's directions also the different divisions of the fleet hoisted the st george's or white ensign being the colours of the commander-in-chief this was done to prevent confusions from occurring during the battle through a variety of national flags the royal sovereign now made the signal by telegraph that the enemy's commander-in-chief was in a frigate this mistake arose from one of their frigates making many signals lord nelson ordered his line to be steered about two points more to the northward than that of his second in command for the purpose of cutting off the retreat of the enemy's van to the port of cadiz which was the reason of the three leading ships of admiral collingwood's line being engaged with the enemy previously to those of the commander-in-chief's line the enemy began to fire on the royal sovereign at thirty minutes past eleven o'clock in ten minutes after which she got under the stern of st anna and commenced a fire on her lieutenant pasco signal officer of the victory was heard to say while looking through his glass there is a top-gallant yard gone his lordship eagerly asked whose top-gallant yard is gone is it the royal sovereign's and on being answered by lieutenant pasco in the negative and that it was the enemy's he smiled and said collingwood is doing well at fifty minutes past eleven the enemy opened their fire on the commander-in-chief they showed great coolness in the commencement of the battle for as the victory approached their line their ships lying immediately ahead of her and across her bows fired only one gun at a time to ascertain whether she was yet within their range this was frequently repeated by eight or nine of their ships till at length a shot passed through the victory's main top gallant sail the hole in which being discovered by the enemy they immediately opened their broadsides supporting an awful and tremendous fire in a very short time afterwards mr scott public secretary to the commander-in-chief was killed by a cannon-shot while in conversation with captain hardy lord nelson being then near them captain adair of the marines with his assistance of a seaman endeavoured to remove the body from his lordship's sight but he had already observed the fall of his secretary and now said with anxiety is that poor scott that is gone and on being answered in the affirmative by captain adair he replied poor fellow lord nelson and captain hardy walked the quarter-deck in conversation for some time after this while the enemy kept up an incessant raking fire a double-headed shot struck one of the parties of marines drawn up on the poop and killed eight of them when his lordship perceiving this ordered captain adair to disperse his men around the ship that they might not suffer so much from being together in a few minutes afterwards a shot struck the four brace bits on the quarter-deck and passed between lord nelson and captain hardy a splinter from the bits bruising captain hardy's foot and tearing the buckle from his shoe 
they both instantly stopped and were observed by the officers on deck to survey each other with inquiring looks each supposing the other to be wounded his lordship then smiled and said this is too warm work hardy to last long and declared that through all the battles he had been in he had never witnessed more cool courage than was displayed by the victory's crew on this occasion the victory by this time having approached close to the enemy's van had suffered very severely without firing a single gun she had lost about twenty men killed and about thirty wounded her mizzen topmast and all her studding sails and their booms on both sides were shot away the enemy's fire being chiefly directed at her rigging with a view to disabling her before she could close with them at four minutes past twelve o'clock she opened fire from both sides of her decks upon the enemy when captain hardy represented to his lordship that it appeared impractical to pass through the enemy's line without going on board some one of their ships lord nelson answered i cannot help it it does not signify which we should run on board of go on board whichever one you please take your choice at twenty minutes past twelve the tiller ropes being shot away mr atkinson the master was ordered below to get the helm put to port which was being done the victory was soon run on board the redoubtable of seventy-four guns on coming alongside and nearly on board of her that ship fired her broadside into the victory and immediately let down her lower deck ports which as has been since learnt was done to prevent her from being boarded through them by the victory's crew she never fired a great gun after this single broadside a few minutes after this the temeraire fell likewise on board of the same redoubtable on the opposite side to the victory having also an enemy's ships said to be la fougere on board of her on her other side so that the extraordinary and unprecedented circumstance occurred here of four ships of the line being on board of each other in the heat of battle forming as compact a tier as if they had been moored together their heads laying all the same way the temeraire as was just before mentioned was between the redoubtable and la fougere the redoubtable commenced a heavy fire of musketry from the tops which was continued for a considerable time with destructive effect upon the victory's crew her great guns however being silent it was supposed at different times that she had surrendered and in consequence of this opinion the victory twice ceased firing upon her by orders transmitted from the quarter-deck at this period scarcely a person in the victory escaped unhurt who was exposed to the enemy's musketry but there were frequent huzzas and cheers heard from between the decks in token of the surrender of different of the enemy's ships an incessant fire was kept up from both sides of the victory her larboard guns played into the santissima trinidada and into the bocantere and the starboard guns of the middle and lower decks were depressed and fired with a diminished charge of powder and three shot each into the redoubtable this mode of firing was adopted by lieutenants williams king ewell and brown to obviate the danger of the temeraire's suffering from the victory shot passing through the redoubtable which must have been the case if the usual quantity of powder and the common elevation had been given to the guns a circumstance occurred in this situation which showed in a most striking manner the cool intrepid nature of the officers and men stationed on the lower deck of the victory when the guns on this deck were run out their muzzles came into contact with the redoubtable side and consequently at every discharge there was reason to fear that the enemy would take fire and both the victory 
and the Temeraire would be involved in her flames. Here, then, was seen the astonishing spectacle of the fireman of each gun standing ready with a bucket full of water, which, as soon as the gun was discharged, he dashed into the enemy through the holes made in her side by the shot. It was from this ship, the Redoubtable, that Lord Nelson received his mortal wound. About fifteen minutes past one o'clock, which was in the heat of the engagement, he was walking the middle of the quarter-deck with Captain Hardy, and in the act of turning near the hatchway with his face towards the stern of the victory, when the fatal ball was fired from the enemy's mizzen-top, which from the situation of the two ships, lying on board of each other, was brought just abaft and rather below the victory's main-yard, and of course not more than fifteen yards distant from that part of the deck where his lordship stood. The ball struck the epaulette on his left shoulder, and penetrated his chest. He fell with his face on the deck. Captain Hardy, who was on his right, the side furthest from the enemy, and advanced some steps before his lordship, on the turning round saw the sergeant, seeker, of marines with two seamen, raising him from the deck, where he had fallen on the same spot on which, a little before, his secretary had breathed his last, with whose blood his lordship's clothes were much soiled. Captain Hardy expressed a hope that he was not severely wounded, to which the gallant chief replied, "'They have done for me at last, Hardy.' "'I hope not,' answered Captain Hardy. "'Yes,' replied his lordship. "'My backbone is shot through.' Captain Hardy ordered the seamen to carry the admiral to the cockpit, and now two incidents occurred strikingly characteristic of this great man, and strongly marking the energy and reflection which in his heroic mind rose superior even to the immediate consideration of his present awful condition. While the men were carrying him down the ladder from the middle deck, his lordship observed that the tiller-ropes were not yet replaced, and desired one of the midshipmen stationed there to go upon the quarter-deck and remind Captain Hardy of that circumstance, and request that new ones should be immediately rove. Having delivered this order, he took his handkerchief from his pocket and covered his face with it, that he might be conveyed to the cockpit at this crisis unnoticed by the crew. Several wounded officers, and about forty men, were likewise earned to the surgeon for assistance just at this time, and some others had breathed their last during the conveyance below. Among the latter were Lieutenant William Andrew Ram, and Mr. Whipple, captain's clerk. The surgeon had just examined these two officers, and found that they were dead. When his attention was arrested by several of the wounded calling to him, Mr. Beatty, Lord Nelson is here. Mr. Beatty, the Admiral is wounded. The surgeon now, on looking round, saw the handkerchief fall from his lordship's face, when the stars on his coat, which also had been covered by it, appeared, Mr. Burke, the purser, and the surgeon, ran immediately to the assistance of his lordship, and took him from the arms of the seamen who had carried him below. In conveying him to the midshipman's berth, they stumbled, but recovered themselves without falling. Lord Nelson then inquired who was supporting him, and when the surgeon informed him, his lordship replied, "'Ah, Mr. Beatty, you can do nothing for me. I have but a short time to live. My back is shot through.' The surgeon said he hoped the wound was not so dangerous as his lordship imagined, and that he might still survive long to enjoy his glorious victory. The Reverend Dr. Scott, who had been absent in another part of the cockpit, administering lemonade to the wounded, 
now came instantly to his lordship, and in the anguish of grief wrung his hands and said, Alas, Beatty, how prophetic you were, alluding to the apprehensions expressed by the surgeon for his lordship's safety previous to the battle. His lordship was laid upon a bed, stripped of his clothes, and covered with a sheet. While this was effecting, he said to Dr. Scott, Doctor, I told you so. Doctor, I am gone. And after a short pause, he added in a low voice, I have to leave Lady Hamilton and my adopted daughter, Horatia, as a legacy to my country. The surgeon then examined the wound, assuring his lordship that he would not put him to much pain in endeavouring to discover the course of the ball, which he soon found had penetrated deep into the chest, and had probably lodged in the spine. This being explained to his lordship, he replied, he was confident his back was shot through. The back was then examined externally, but without any injury being perceived, on which his lordship was requested by the surgeon to make him acquainted with all of his sensations. He replied that he felt a gush of blood every minute within his breast, that he had no feeling in the lower part of his body, and that his breathing was difficult, and attended with very severe pain about the part of his spine where he was confident that the ball had struck, for, said he, I felt it break my back. These symptoms, but more particularly the gush of blood which his lordship complained of, together with the state of the pulse, indicated to the surgeon the hopeless situation of the case. But till after the victory was ascertained and announced to his lordship, the true nature of the wound was concealed by the surgeon from all on board, except for only Captain Hardy, Dr. Scott, Mr. Burke, and Mrs. Smith and Westenberg, the assistant surgeons. The victory's crew cheered whenever they observed the enemy's ship surrender. On one of these occasions, Lord Nelson anxiously inquired what was the cause of it, when Lieutenant Pasco, who lay wounded at some distance from his lordship, raised himself up, and told him that another ship had struck, which appeared to give him much satisfaction. He now felt an ardent thirst, and frequently called for drink, and to be fanned with paper, making use of these words, Fan, fan, and drink, drink. This he continued to repeat when he wished for a drink, or for the refreshment of cool air, till a very few minutes before he expired. Lemonade and wine and water were given to him occasionally. He evinced great solicitude for the event of the battle, and fears for the safety of his friend Captain Hardy. Dr. Scott and Mr. Burke used every argument they could suggest to relieve his anxiety. Mr. Burke told him, The enemy were decisively defeated, and that he hoped his lordship would still live to be himself the bearer of joyful tidings to his country. He replied, it is nonsense, Mr. Burke, to suppose I can live. My sufferings are great, but they will all be over soon. Dr. Scott entreated his lordship not to despair of living, he said. He trusted that divine providence would restore him once more to his dear country and friends. Ah, doctor, replied his lordship, it is all over, it is all over. Many messages were sent to Captain Hardy by the surgeon, requesting his attendance on his lordship, who became impatient to see him, and often exclaimed, Will no one bring Hardy to me? He must be killed. He is surely destroyed. The captain's aide-de-camp, Mr. Berkeley, now came below, 
and stated that circumstances respecting the fleet required captain hardy's presence on deck but that he would avail himself of the first favourable moment to visit his lordship on hearing him deliver this message to the surgeon his lordship inquired who had brought it mr burke answered it is mr bulkley my lord it is his voice replied his lordship and then he said to the young gentleman remember me to your father End of section two. Recording by F. N. H. Visit www.bookranger.co.uk.